Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Cardiovascular disease is something critically important that we discuss because it is far and away the major cause of death and many disabilities. Diabetes is one of the most common um, predisposing causes for uh, cardiovascular disease. And while there are great treatments for diabetes, there's no magic bullet. There's a tremendous amount to know. There's a tremendous amount to try to keep straight. Uh, when we're, we're talking about managing diabetes, we're not just talking about dealing with one physician. We're talking about dealing with multiple different physicians and other people who assist physicians in caring for patients with diabetes. Well, to help us get all this straight, we'll be speaking today with Dr. Julianne Kirk, a doctor of pharmacy and professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Kirk uh, is a specialist in diabetes. In fact, she's a certified diabetes educator. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Cardiovascular disease is such a common cause of death, far and away more than anything else. And there are, and we know there's things people can do um, to help prevent it, including keeping their diabetes under control. Diabetes seems like such a, a, a big problem. How, how do we manage it? Well, Steve, I think that it's fairly complex to even think about all of the aspects of the treatment of, of diabetes and what a patient faces when they're first diagnosed because, as you and I both know, in chronic disease states, there's a clear denial period that patients go through that they don't want to have the disease. Maybe it was never explained to them very well about what is going on with their diagnosis. Oftentimes, the diagnosis is delivered over the phone or such that they end up in my office and didn't even know they had a full diagnosis yet. How how do you make the diagnosis? What exactly is diabetes? Okay, let's um, go through the generalities of that because that's worthy of discussion. And, you know, I think certain points in people's life, depending on their family history, certain risk they may have if they're overweight, have high blood pressure, have problems with their cholesterol. Probably family history is one of the most important. Um, if they had a pregnancy, if it's a woman, and had problems with blood sugar, um, that those are usually good indicators of ways that we screen people to say, hmm, are, are we at risk for having high blood sugar or diabetes? And in a sim- simplistic form, can the body handle the glucose from food or stress 
or daily life. So, so it's not just food related. It's yeah. related to other functions in the body. The glucose, it's, the sugar, the, um, these are the same thing. So you eat, you're taking in sugars or things that can be turned into sugars. Your body has to keep the blood sugar level in the right place, not too high, not too low. And um, in diabetes, you, you've, you lose control over that. Yeah, that's right. And in, in even what people are told is, well, my doctor said I was insulin resistant. Not sure I understand that. And what that means is that the body's still making insulin. That's type 2 diabetes. But it's just not working as efficiently to store the glucose where it needs to be in the muscle and the liver and not circulating in the bloodstream. Um, to certain organs that it can cause problems with your eyes, kidneys, heart. And that's the silent thing about blood sugar and glucose and diabetes is that a lot of times you walk around with it for a long time and don't even know you have it because the body is an amazing machine that compensates or adjusts to high blood sugars over time, might feel a little tired, might go to the bathroom a little more often, but it's oftentimes infection or illness that would bring somebody in if they don't take in enough fluids, and that's more extreme cases when we're not monitoring or trying to figure out, oh, you have a family history, your weight's up a little high, let's check and make sure and screen what we call a fasting blood sugar or blood sugar first thing in the morning after you haven't eaten for six to eight hours is oftentimes where where we'll find it's a little bit elevated. What's the number we look for for screening? It would be a fasting blood sugar or glucose above 100 would be abnormal. That doesn't mean you don't, when we diagnose it, that doesn't mean you have full blown diabetes, it may mean a marker that will continue to evaluate you on other test parameters to see if you do fit the criteria for diabetes. Yeah, so I really appreciate you letting the audience know the kinds of things they should be out on on the lookout for. So if they're having to get up to pee in the middle of the night multiple times or they're losing their energy, so, so there's something not right, it's time to see their family doctor for a checkup. That's correct. Or if, again, some of the risk factors um, of, of knowing that they may be at risk for um, having high blood sugar. So if they're overweight. Yeah, I think that's a big one in um, high blood pressure. In high blood pressure. So my, my naive understanding of diabetes, it's in diabetes, uh, you don't have enough insulin action that, that – that either you don't have enough insulin or the insulin isn't working well enough to keep your blood sugar under control. Yes. All right. Well, there, I understand there's, there's lots of ways of treating diabetes. So can, can you describe, you know, the different categories of treatment and, and what the options are? Sure, and I don't know if we um, distorted from the, uh, the original question about how you know people get diagnosed, but I do think to to put some clarification on that just a little further, um, you you either come in and you've got you know, symptoms or signs that are you know really you know extraordinary. You in you know, 
come in and the blood sugar is very high, or you've been monitored as you go along, and then it's like, okay, we're watching it, and we we know that you're not handling the um, blood sugar load of your food, and we're seeing some abnormality on labs because we're we're following it more closely. But if you're younger, sometimes we don't do that as efficiently as we do if you're coming in for other. Um, chronic disease states or being seen by the uh, physician more frequently. So I would say it depends how often you go and see your doctor. So the American Diabetes Association, which tends to be the um, body we look to to make some of the recommendations in the United States, and anybody can be a member of that group, both professionals or patients. They have lots of good patient advocacy um, that is focused specifically on people living with diabetes, um, at, at any rate, they, they would advocate that after the age of 45, everybody needs to be screened once a year for diabetes routinely um, and then repeat that every three years. So at 45 and then at least every three years, some would recommend if you have risk factors annually. All right, very good. Okay, so the treatment. At the beginning, we talked about the complexity of treatment with this once you, you know, do get a diagnosis that most people are pretty overwhelmed with having, you know, been labeled with this diagnosis. And that, that can be um, very simple at first because if you catch it early, the drug the drugs are, are, are more minimal in the, the pathway as opposed to diet and exercise. However, we know diet and exercise won't cure everybody of this, and we won't get our target um, blood sugars where we'd like them to, to, to live. And typically that would be 120 or less if we're looking at a scale. But certainly when blood sugars are above 200 consistently, that worries physicians. We know that damage to blood vessels and the risk of having a heart attack or stroke becomes much higher as that blood sugar becomes more out of control and is a marker along with having good blood pressure and good cholesterol control. So we call those the ABCs. We like to know what people's A1C is, and that's the average blood sugar over the last three months. And the B is for blood pressure and C for cholesterol. So we like to always frame to um, people that get a diagnosis and then start with treatment of diet and exercise first. So diet, As, diet presumably works because it, you're bringing in less sugars so the blood doesn't have to, you don't have to keep it under control so much, and exercise because the muscles are helping suck the sugar out of the blood, and I guess presumably if you get the weight down, that also somehow improves what we call insulin resistance, how, how well your body reacts to the insulin that you have? Yeah, I, th I think um, those, those examples um, would ring true. I think a little more detail with it would be that if we can start with just spreading our food out with small meals, so the body's going to do better with small amounts of food throughout the day instead of just one large or two large meals because the challenge to try to lower the um, sugar level from food, mostly carbohydrate, converting over to sugar. And so if we eat a great big 
spaghetti dinner with bread, then the body has a tougher time handling the glucose load from that food in one sitting as opposed to it being spread out over you know, two or three small meals. And so that's probably the, the first thing that we really try to talk to people about is, you know, how do you eat and changing eating patterns. And then we try to get to the content of the food and the drinks. And probably, you know, a, a large portion of people that come into our clinic are usually drinking large amounts of sweetened drinks, whether it's soda, sweet tea, or juices. They tend to always be sources of high amounts of fructose and glucose that get you know, immediate sugar infusion into the body. And if we can cut a lot of those sweet drinks out, that usually automatically helps quickly and replace those with healthier choices of unsweetened drinks, water, and um, stay away from so much carbonated soda. So that's the first thing we try to do is um, do those diet histories. But then the exercise portion, as you were saying, is equally important because it helps the body's insulin sensitivity because the muscle now is at work utilizing um, glucose storage pathways. You get better disposal of glucose where it needs to be. And then the liver, which is... A, a, a big player here in diabetes isn't, you know, pushing out glucose at the wrong time. And that's one of the main defects that occurs in diabetes that we really try to explain to patients is it's not just what you eat, it's the, the sedentary lifestyle, meaning you're not moving around enough and the liver's just, you know, dispersing glucose at all these times where the sensitivity from muscle uptake that can be achieved by exercise is not used as efficiently. Okay. So we've got diet and exercise. What else can you do for somebody who's having trouble controlling their sugar? Well, we really try to get them to monitor their blood sugar because that's very important for feedback to the patient so that they know, hey, wow, every time I eat the pizza at lunch after I you know, check my blood sugar two hours later, it's 250. After we eat, we'd like to see that blood sugar more in the 140, no higher than 180 range. And so giving that direct feedback through self-monitoring of blood glucose through meter machines that um, can be very affordable to most patients. And most of the time, insurance company does a good job of covering the strips. So it's a meter device and a strip where a person lances um, their finger or other arms, alternative sites. Holy moly, Julie, this this sounds so much more complicated than just taking a pill once a day. Oh, well, I just think that monitoring and the patient knowing what their blood sugar is um, would be good feedback. However, we've, we've got many options for oral medication that would be a a good option for a lot of people. We have some medicines that make the pancreas help by producing more insulin, um, and those class of drugs are available. So those are Um, pills? Those are pills. And so there's pills that help the pancreas. Of of one or two of those. What, What drugs are we talking about? So 
probably the most common one that is used widely is called glipizide, mm-hmm. and it's generic, so it's very cheap. And so, but th- those aren't the first drugs we usually go to. The the first one we probably is agreed by most of the expert panels out there say metformin um, to help with the liver. You know, putting out like we were talking about the the liver organ from producing too much glucose at the wrong time, since it's our main organ that stores glucose, mm-hmm. the storage organ. Any other pills? Um, there are a lot of new classes of pills. Um, they, they tend to be a little more expensive, but can be options, and they are um, drugs like Genuvia and a newer one called Onglyza. So they um, work to help with food absorption and with sensitivity of insulin as well and um, how the the body's handling um, glucose after eating. So those are new options Mm -hmm. of a drug class. Um, And I can give you the drug classes, but people probably want to know there's several options for pills. Um, Some of them are a little more expensive than others. And then when we think of diabetes, we think about injecting insulin into people. We're still doing that? Absolutely. Insulin is still the one of the most efficient ways we can lower blood sugar. So if you're a patient and you walk in and you get you go to a screening and your blood sugar's 300, it's likely the physician's going to probably say, you know, we we can do pills, but let's do a short course of insulin and we'll get the blood sugars down where they where they need to be and then some of the pills will will work better at keeping the targeted blood sugar um, at the level we want. So, so the pills can be very efficient, but they do better at keeping it under control as opposed to trying to lower it when it's very high. So so the shot, the insulin injection, those are shots twice a day or something like that? You know, there's a lot of different forms of the um, insulin injections. We have some insulins that once people are on pills and they get try one or two pills or a combination of pills and are still not getting their glucose where they need to be, we'll usually add a one-shot-a-day background insulin, um, and it's, um, you know, does it have a prominent, what we call, peak effect to it. So we call it this peakless insulin that stays in the body all day long to give for lack of a better term, some background insulin so the body has a little bit of insulin to work with all day long. That's where we usually start with people once the pills aren't working. However, we'll try to keep some of the oral pills on with the insulin. So it's not uncommon to see a combination of pills and insulin. And diet and exercise. And diet and exercise. So back to the original question, it can be a lot to digest and complexity of regimens because it is self-management for the patient, and they're the ones doing 98% of the work of managing their diabetes, depending on how often they come for physician visit and to see an educator or other team members um, in the group of people that can help manage their diabetes or other you know other things that go on with usually high blood pressure and high cholesterol that's very common to occur with diabetes. 
You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. Julie Kirk, a doctor of pharmacy. She's professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Uh, Her interests include diabetes and educational interventions. Well, Julie, you raised, I think, one of the most important issues we face here. Um, What what you've described as far as the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes seems extremely complicated, and we've, we've already spent a good portion of the show talking about it. If someone were to go to their doctor, um, they'd want to have heard everything we've already talked about and probably a whole lot more. It just seems like a, an incredibly complicated problem to manage, and not to mention the comorbidities and other things that go along with diabetes. You know, we probably don't want people coming away thinking, oh, this is so big, I can't handle it, because after all, it is treatable, and that's the good news. But I do think there's a fair amount of motivation that has to go with this, and I've always told patients over the last 25 years, if all you do, most of the insurance companies do pay for diabetes education once or twice a year, Medicare will pay for two visits, one-hour visits per year. When you're first diagnosed, they'll reimburse for a class for diabetes. But I find that when people are first diagnosed and they get this big wave of information um, all at one time thrown at them, and when we look at literacy levels, understanding, comprehension after doing 10 hours of classwork, at the end, what do people really know about it and take away? I find seeing patients over the last 20 years here that it really does take reiteration and revisit to understand some of the, the diet acts, but the, the diet portions of food and food habits and, you know, being motivated to go back and do some of the activity and exercise and to stick with adherence plans for taking medication because I find most people do feel a little overwhelmed with the initial information they get. And then they're, they're able to go back in their own domain in their home and say, okay, this is what's manageable, so that when we meet with them one-on-one, we say, okay, let's set some goals for you that you think you can actually um, do every day and make part of your life, because we don't want to spend an hour talking to somebody about how to change their diet, and they really don't want to change their diet. Their their lifestyle lies in fast food, so then we're going to have to figure out what on the fast food menu they're willing to change. So we really need to figure out common ground. Where are where are they and you know what what are they willing to be able to modify that's a win-win situation. And I find if you approach it that way, most people will say, yeah, you know, I can make this happen and I can improve my numbers and I understand the importance of good control to prevent the cardiovascular disease that we worry about being heart attack and stroke. Yeah. Well, Julia, what I want to explore now, though, is there's, you, you talked about this mountain of information. You mentioned there's a team. I, I hear people complaining their doctor doesn't spend enough time with them. You know, doctors may only have 5, 10, 15 minutes to spend with a patient. And clearly, uh, there's, there's more information here than a doctor um, could get across in, in, in a reasonable visit. So, 
what is going on with with teams or with with other people? Who are the other um, players involved besides the patient and the physician in diabetes management? Well, Steve, I think it is a team approach that can can vary over time as people live with diabetes. Certainly having a primary care provider as the person that is really the continuity of of your health care because while diabetes can be encompass many parts of of your health that you would think, oh, I'm just going to go to him to talk about my diabetes, that person really is, as a primary care provider, looking at all aspects of your health. It's just the diabetes is going to be oftentimes a main focus. Um, usually most physicians will want to invite, involve diabetes education, and as we talked a little bit about the monitoring with a blood glucose meter, that in and of itself can be a visit with a diabetes educator. But not only is the diabetes educator somebody that can help the physician with just setting the goals for behavior um, management with diet, exercise, stress, medication adherence, all the aspects to reinforce, it doesn't replace them seeing their physician. Now, where other people come involved... But before you go on to other people, what what kind of training would this diabetes educator have? Well, typically, in our diabetes care center here, it would typically be a nurse or dietitian or pharmacist, and myself being a pharmacist, that has... um, certification as a diabetes educator. And what does that mean? It means that we've been through some training and done board exams to know a content area of diabetes education for um, not only medicines and diet and exercise, but behavior management. Is there an organization that that certifies people? It is. And it is the, you know, through um, our professional organizations and the main one being the American Diabetes Association and the American Association of Diabetes Educator, there's actually a separate board called the National National Certification Board for Diabetes Educators. Great. And we take a test to qualify us in, and then we recertify every five years to keep our um, certification active and up-to-date. Excellent. So, Okay, and so, and then you were saying there's, there's, it's more than just a doctor and diabetes educator. Um, it can be, and I think it depends on the potential problems that you can have with diabetes. So we know that people sometimes have foot problems or need to get their nails trimmed, and they would send them to a podiatrist or a foot doctor if they needed, you know, to be seen or for for di- Sometimes we've got shoes. For, um, that insurance will cover called diabetes shoes. Um, so we'll get those fitted for them so that people can safely exercise. So you have a foot doctor that oh. could become involved. And you mentioned and, the eyes, the Texas, so there must be an eye doctor. Yeah, so we want people to get their eye exams once a year um, and get a good ophthalmology check, not just going to get your eyeglass prescription updated, but actual um, retinal exam or the background in your eyes checked for to see how the blood vessels are doing. So, in the- thanks for clarifying that. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, not just not just for glasses. This is a retinal exam. Excellent. Okay, so ophthalmologist once a year eye exam, and we also want to be um, evaluate 
you know, patient will be evaluated depending on um, other potential problems they may have with their disease. If they have any heart problems that become beyond just blood pressure treatment, they may see a heart specialist or like a cardiologist. Specialist similarly, huh? And similarly with the kidneys, if we see any problems over time because we'll be watching kidney function for the organ that gets rid of the waste in our body. And so sometimes we'll have to involve a nephrologist. So there can be several team members, but I'd say the primary person would be um, the family physician. But sometimes the diabetes gets... So if we have a a younger person that has um, no insulin production, we will usually involve an endocrinologist who's a specialist in um, treating diabetes because there there gets to a point where the uh, family doctor will say, you know, I want to make sure we're covering everything. So, yeah, it's very clear. You've got so much going on. You need either the primary care doctor or an endocrinologist to supervise and coordinate all these other things to make sure they're getting done. Yeah, thanks for helping me with that. But, yeah, I wouldn't say everybody goes to an endocrinologist, but I would say if if it's difficult to manage or if they want to get a second opinion to make sure everything's being done or just for comprehension to make sure as part of the team to go once, that's not uncommon at all. You know, one of the things that I think – uh, we sometimes forget about when we think of who we're partnering with to take care of the patient um, are the patient support organizations. And I would think they would be an integral part of this, especially for a condition like diabetes. I agree. And we had talked a little bit about the American Diabetes Association. The, um, we've had chapters in our own area here. And then oftentimes wherever the patient receives their initial diabetes education in our own local area here, Forsyth, um, as well as Baptist, has diabetes education programs. There usually are support groups that meet through those education programs um, that are geared towards adults and uh, and younger people so as well. What, what do those organizations do that that's different from or complementary to what the diabetes educator provides? Well, for our younger um, people with diabetes, there are opportunities to go to a diabetes camp and and work with, um, and it's fun. They don't just do diabetes there, but to be able to interact with other people that have diabetes and know that you're not out there by yourself. And I think even the support groups in our adult patients, that's what I find may work for some individuals so that you know you're not trying to tackle this by yourself and having that interaction and discussion that's usually facilitated by an educator like myself or what be it and a lot of those are run um, at churches um, through the american diabetes association in a local fashion so there's a lot of different venues out there depending on where where the person is receiving their primary education. If, if somebody has diabetes or knows somebody who does and they want to know more about diabetes, more about the treatment options, more about what research is being done, does the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, or other organizations have a web presence that's reliable? Um, 
You know, you don't oh, want to absolutely. send people to the web for unreliable information. Yeah, and all they all they would need to do is top, type in American Diabetes Association, and they would get right to lots of different websites that, you know, have educational materials and information that would really um, be simplistic enough to um, navigate through. You have any favorites? I would, you know, both the diabetes, whether we look at the American Diabetes Association or the American Association of Diabetes Educator, I would have to say that anybody can get on those sites and, and navigate through it. But certainly the American Diabetes Association, I think, probably has very good examples for patients to access um, a wide variety of information. Okay, well, we, we've covered so much. We've covered the diagnosis of diabetes, some, some, some basic information about various treatment options, the role of, of the team in managing diabetes and, and ways to get information about it. What are the patient's responsibilities um, when they have diabetes? Well, that's a great question because I, I do feel like physicians get frustrated that, okay, you're your glucose isn't controlled or you haven't come in for a visit in over a year, and that there definitely has to be the obligation and motivation from the patient to control this. After all, as I said before, the the predominance of this is is self-management. So, you know, regular visits to your, your physician for monitoring, and this disease is so silent that I promise most people won't feel bad if their blood sugar's high. They, they may be a little tired or go to the bathroom more often, but amazingly, the body will allow us to, to compensate and, and live with this. Yeah, well, so, so what you're saying is that you may, be going, you may be slowly going blind, you may be slowly headed towards ulcers and amputations of your legs, you may be slowly headed towards going on dialysis for your kidneys, and not know it. Yes, because I think it is so, the process is very slow. And I know people that have lived with diabetes for 40 years and still don't have complications, but those individuals have really taken steps to try to keep their blood pressure, the ABCs, their A1C under control, their blood pressure well control, and their cholesterol. And those tend to be the, the big three. It's not to minimize that there's other aspects to control, like the yearly eye exam and checking your feet and getting your immunizations. Those tend to be the things we target um, to, to monitor in patients, sometimes aspirin use. So there, there certainly is a prescription out there that physicians try to follow and say, you know, are we doing all of these care measures for patients on an annual basis or more and checking A1C every three months is, is, is what we really target for. So if the patient doesn't come in for regular visits for monitoring and, and goes one or two years before seeing the physician, we won't have a strict of um, control to try to prevent those long-term complications. Uh, well, Julie, thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any final thoughts or suggestions for our audience on things they 
can or should be doing to make sure they're getting the best possible health and health care? Well, I would say if you go right to the, if people do have access to computers, I do think the American Diabetes Association has done, the, the, the website there is really geared to, to the consumer. And if you, they type in um, American Diabetes Association, it will come up to www.diabetes.org. And that will get you to the actual webpage that has diabetes basics, living with diabetes, food and fitness, what's going on in my community, and you can put in your zip code, and it'll tell you what's going on in your community, um, news and research. So I do think that is a very nice website for anybody to go on and get just basic knowledge. You know, I get the sense that um, that these these basic issues that this website is going to recommend to folks with diabetes to help prevent heart disease is probably just good advice for everybody. It's just that people with diabetes, you know, they're a little more sensitive. They need this advice even more. But maybe this is a good source for all our listeners for advice on a healthy diet and healthy living. I think so. And so I just wanted to make sure because you asked me about the details of that and that they don't try to make it very hard to get to that. And when you, you know, it's point and click, you know, look at the areas that I mentioned for um, interest. It it has got a wealth of patient-driven information there that would be applicable to all of us. Wonderful. Julie Kirk, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you. Bye. Diabetes is a complicated condition. The treatment, what can involve pills, injections, diet, and exercise. There's so much to know. And it's critical to have somebody coordinating the care. Um, I think like in many other conditions, it's great to have a primary care provider uh, that you trust and that you work with to make sure you're getting all your care properly coordinated and, and everything's being kept up to date. I, I think that's certainly one important message uh, that, that Dr. Julie Kirk has left us with. But in addition, um, you can't just rely on your primary care doctor to do everything for you. Um, there's no magic bullet. There's no single pill they're going to give you that's going to solve this problem like so many other chronic diseases. You have to take personal responsibility, uh, responsibility to make sure that you're being monitored frequently enough, that you're having, you know, a healthy diet and appropriate exercise, something that all of us um, need to pay attention to. I think it's critically important to be educated. Um, So many of my patients expect me to provide them all the education they need. And I think that's a mistake. I, I would encourage people to make use of all the complementary resources that are available nowadays, uh, the physician may have a diabetes educator or for other diseases, other educators that they work with that are specially trained, perhaps even better than the physician, at educating patients about what they need to know to take care of their chronic disease. And then nowadays with the Internet, and certainly you're a user of the Internet, um, you can make use of Internet-based resources. Dr. Kirk pointed out, um, that www.diabetes, D-I-A-B-E-T-E-S, dot O-R-G is a great resource. 
And I will add to that my favorite website, Medline Plus. This is the federal government website with um, information on a host of conditions. They have a beautiful website about diabetes and diabetes management, and it's a portal to all sorts of other information. Just, you, you can access that just by uh, Googling Medline, M-E-D-L-I-N-E, plus, P-L-U-S, and then diabetes or whatever other condition you're looking to learn more about. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.